Welcome to the Biblical Editorial Review. Here we will discuss the contrast between two worldviews, one being biblical and the other being worldly. How does a follower of Christ distinguish between the two? And now here's your host. Hello and welcome to the Biblical Editorial Review. I'm your host, Cleveland Rose, and I want to thank each and every one of you guys for a wonderful radio experience. Um, I want to thank you from last week's show. Um, it was really, really profound. It was very provocative. It was down to earth and people was engaged and love it. And I just want to tell you that that show has brought a lot of people to understand the reason of the LBJ lie that came across that these White supremacists, white nationalists, black supremacists, black nationalists, the Black Lives Matter, Antifa, and you got the socialists, you got the communists, you got the uh, progressives, you got the liberals. All that is from one part, the Democrat Party. And lots of people literally were braze offend a lot of people got people got mad about it but it was the truth and i want to thank you guys for um allow us to really broadcast that the episode because that right there was the solidify everything that we try to do but i want to bring into this week of the expository truth that is series that we have we have it for the uh, for this week and next week we're not going to do the lesser coverage but we're going to have another uh, network that will be connected to the do the lesser coverage do RCR but after the lesser coverage we will have the um, the aftermath and that's what we'll call the aftermath of the uh the lesser coverage of 2016 midterm elections and we're going to be part of the expository truth that we're going to be having to conclude the uh the whole uh series here but i want to want to tell you about this topic this week that is very 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 undermined and a lot of the things that have came to fruition of what all this mess go for. But first, before we go any further, I want to put some things to rest that literally needs to be put to rest. That people are all over social media, um, all over the internet, all over the news outlets, all over this whole country, and it needs to be put to rest right here right now now we just have today as i talk it to you there's a lot of things was going on with the conservatives conservatives was getting a lot of conservative uh, people republicans and everything else for the past few months they was getting attacked left and right from the far left and the same people i just uh announced were exactly the same people who are attacking conservatives. Now, why? Well, because they are very, to try to have a scare tactic, try to um, scare people not to vote this coming election. Not to, people don't want, they don't want people to vote 
this 2018 election, this 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 midterm election cycle. Usually, people don't come out in droves to elect, but this year, this is the first in history a midterm election is so political charged and so spiritually awakened some people. Now, when the what happens to the Brett Kavanaugh scenario, the migrates or the evaders that's coming in from Guatemala, Honduras, and Mexico in droves to try to come into America as a a way of refugee. No, that's not biblical. None of it is. And if you look at it, everything that's going on stems from the Democrats. All of it is. Now, today, yesterday, today, uh, and it's, it sickens me to the core how this going. And I had to talk to several people and they even came to the conclusion this is fake. You have people like George Soros was the first. Now, I'm going to go down the line of all the state actors of this. Then I'm going to get to one solution, one conclusion, I'm sorry, to emanate why I'm saying this. George Soros, a bomb at his residence, and they found it, everything else, and tried to... um to say that someone did it. Nancy Pelosi, a mob, cussed her out. Was all sudden was recorded and everything else. Then here's the kicker. Something was going on with the Clintons. This it happened on Wednesday morning that the Clintons have some kind of, of substance came into their residence. And the Obama's the same way. Then go a little bit further, a little bit further here. It's a, uh, I think it's something else happened today. I, I'm, I'm a, and it is, it's so sad that all this stuff was happening here, that all these bomb threats. Yeah, it, I'm gonna read all this. This is what's going on. I'm gonna read this. This is from Fox News. Okay, explosive devices mailed to Obama. Harry Clinton and others um, prompt security scare. I'm gonna read this. Like I said, I already did the state actors about George Soros, Hillary Clinton, Obama, Na- Maxine Waters is involved, Eric Holder's involved, Nancy Pelosi's involved. Um, but they make it newsworthy. Senator uh, uh, Lear, Charles, uh, 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 Chuck Schumer, uh, you name it. They and the thing is, they blame Trump. All of this, all of a sudden, stimulate from. They said that now we getting threatened. It's fake. All of this is fake, and I'm gonna tell you why. Here's a, a very, very powerful, powerful statement that came out of all this. Oh, also, I forgot one more place that almost that that got this bomb st- scare too. CNN in New York. Yeah, let me. That's that's the that tops the all up right there. That tops the whole scenario up right there. Proves this that this is fake. All of this is fake because they want to scare people. Say, well, these people are are on the right side doing this too, but the people from the left have been doing it for months. 
since last since 2016 when they did not accept the election of the uh, President Trump, right? When they did not accept the fact that he's president of the United States, when he is making things happen, it started from there. When he got inaugurated, they started. They became mobs. You see? And there's a slogan going on. And even people from CNN don't even want to talk about it. That these people are not mobs. This they are. Democrats are mobs. Republicans are make jobs. That's the mean now. Democrats are mobs. Republicans make jobs. That's right there is the best slogan ever. And it's a true slogan because it's happening. And you have people from the far right. I mean, not far right, far left, are really losing their active minds about this whole thing. And then you make you wonder why. Because they are the ones that's causing it. And now they said that it's happened to them, it's fake. Because if you look at every last one of the reports, it's like boom, 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 boom. It's like all at one now. Stacy Washington, I love Stacy. Stacy Washington's awesome. She put on her show yesterday about that very thing that bond threats uh, on Republicans from Republicans. No conservatives don't do these things. Only Democrats do it because they want to cause people to be fearful of going and get uh, go and vote. You know, my family and I we're going to vote this coming weekend. And the main reason why we're going to vote is because we know who we vote for. See, we live in the state of Tennessee, and Tennessee is on the balance of everything. Now, there's so many reports talk about Republicans need to be, GOP need to be scared because of the early voting. Don't worry about it. You guys keep voting. Keep going out there and vote. Vote early. Vote promptly. Vote diligently but no you know who you need to vote for and we need to vote for because there's a things going on in our country that we don't need to stop but these people from the far left these people who use these scare tactics these news media that's so out of touch of the reality are the various things that's going on i have a great friend and he when we talk about this after my uh uh we have a webinar today on a lot of stuff today, and that was yesterday, I'm sorry, yesterday, that's what happened. He said it's fake. Now he used to be a stunt liberal. Used to keyword used to be a stunt liberal. And I put him into the right side of things. Not me, but God has, and he and thanks be to God, he sh- that God showed him the truth. He see it for himself. Even he said, "This is fake." But that's what I want to put out there: all of it's fake. The whole thing, what is going on, that you hear in a lot of the news cycle, including Fox News, the stuff that's been reported is fake. Yes, the FBI got involved. Yes, the Secret Service got involved, but it's all fake. It's fake because they want to make this happen. So they had to make things that look like it is, but it's not. Okay, if it did that, now you should have did something by now to prove that they were serious. 
But you got Antifa, you got Black Lives Matter, you got white nationalists, white supremacists, black supremacists, black liberation front, all these other people going out there doing protesting, going all this stuff doing protesting, being active, are the ones that's doing it. But they saying we are the now we doing it and we've been doing it. that's a kicker. Because look at this here. And this is how it gets so bad. Blaming uh, Trump here. I'm going to read this here. Now, in his first public uh, uh, remarks on the package, which largely target Democrat figures, President Trump said Wednesday afternoon that the devices has been inspected and a major federal investigation is now underway. Now, here he is. We have to unify. We have to come together, Trump said, at the bill signing of the Opioid legislation. Now, acts of threats, acts of threats of political violence of any kind has no place in the United States of America. Now, he already could, he already condemned them, but that's not enough for them. Here's more. Senator Democrat, Senate Democrat leader Chuck Chucky or Charles Chucky, and Nancy Pelosi from the House issued a joint statement Wednesday afternoon saying that, here they are, Trump words ring hollow until he reverses his statements that condone acts of violence. Here he is. Time and time again, the president has condoned physical violence and divided America with his words and his actions, said Schumer and Pelosi. Expressing support of Congressman, which is you no know, Greg Genefani, who by slammed a reporter, the neo Nazi who killed a young woman in Charlottesville. This season of this is in all this here, the, the neo Nazis are socialists. It's more okay. His supporters at rallies who get violent with protesters, dictators around the world who murdered their own citizens and referred to the free press as the enemy of the people. Now, what does it have to do with that? Nothing. Here's another one. This is from that's, uh, for, for Maxine Waters here. And it's saying here that the U.S. Capitol Police is investigating a suspicious package addressed to Democrat uh, California representative Maxine Waters. The package is at this Capitol Hill screening facility in Maryland. The rapid involvement security scare, right? The the whole thing um, went public when the Secret Service confirmed Wednesday morning its officers have intercepted two suspicious packages identified as potential explosive devices sent to Obama and Clinton. Now, CNN employees shortly afterwards were evacuated from the New York office due to the suspicious package in the Time Warren Center reporting addressed to CIA director John Brennan. You see, this is Dan Dick, who is the analyst for NBC at the New York Press Club. Uh, conference, NYPD Commissioner James O'Neill says officers on the scene identify what appears as 
the interval contained white powder, which is now being investigated. Meanwhile, the focus turns to the Sunrise, Florida, of the building house's office of Representative Debbie Wiseman Schultz, the Democrat from Florida. See, this is fake. Look at the prime minister. The people that is on the news, on the everything else, are the various people that is the one that caused the issues going against us. And now they said these states is going against them. This stuff is fake. Literally, astronomically, truthfully. Here's another one in San Diego. Right here, the building housing of offices of Senator Camilla Harris, Democrat for California, and the San Diego Union Tribune was evaluated due to the suspicious package. But police later said that the package was merely an abandoned property, and Harris spokesman said the suspicious package was not addressed to the senator of their office. And it go on and on and on and on, lies after lies after lies. Now, this is why we are exposing this truth. We are exposing these things because you want to know how these things is happening in Cleveland. It's because what they, the people who are in charge of all this are the various people who cause the problems in it. And they are the people that goes in, the, in schools, teaching these kids impressionable minds, lying to them. This is why it's a, it's, this here is the main reason why we got problems. Okay? This is the main reason why we have issues in our society. We have atheism. You got social justice warriors. You got all these things, right, going on in our sovereignty uh, 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 country. They bring all this evil into the, um, you know, into the public schools. And that's why my wife and I, made a proclamation that we never send our son back to public school ever again. We didn't. He graduated. He's doing great. And that's why we thank God that God had blessed us and Jesus as our Lord gave us the ability through the Holy Spirit to do what is due diligence for our son. And that's why I'm saying that you have to know what you're up against. You will have to know what's going on. You have to know who these people are. And you have to know why this is happening. Now, we're going to give you two things that you need to know. And I want to really hammer on this one. Why? Well, two reasons why. One reason is because we're talking about educators and activists. Even on the conservative side, you got people on Facebook who are not educating people. What they're doing, they literally put in the time and the means to try to emulate something that is not true. They are giving them all kinds of news reports, stuff like that. But are you? what are you doing? Are you educating people of what's going on? Are you telling the truth 
by giving them the true being a mean of everything's going on when it comes to education. You got to see these these young people don't know what conservatism is, and they are and they don't even know who what Christianity is. Because in these in, in from elementary now all the way to college, these teachers, these edu- these these activists, teachers, and these um professors and everybody else doing what? They are indoctrinating them to become this mess we're going through now. And you need to know this. You need to understand. What you up against? Because I'm gonna tell you something. You're gonna to be very, very surprised on how this stuff has just escalated. How all this thing has become. Because you'll think this is just normal. It's not normal. You'll think this is absolutely a good thing. It's not. This here. Is the problem we have it. It's starting from a principle mind. Head start. Remember, Linda B. Johnson, his wife, star head start for blacks. Need to get the kids away from you to parent them so we, the state, will parent them. And that's what happened. How I know this. I am a I'm the product of being he, being went to Head Start. My wife has. We both have because we live in impoverished areas. They sent us to Head Start so they said the state could know how to teach, how to teach us to be kids, how to teach us what it means to be an adult or be anything. They became our parents. Then the school system. Now think about it, 14 years of all their indoctrination. They you, you had to take the act of God, which you do, you had to surrender to God to become a child of God. That means all their indoctrination had to come out of you. And this was why you got to go and get educated. Because you got people on there who said that, well, we're here to try bringing the truth. And this is conservatives and liberals and everybody else in between. But are you really doing it? Are you really educating the kids what is the truth? Not this fake crap that's going on trying to put it out there saying, I'm going to put it out there and see what happens. You want to go on Facebook live, right? Not giving anything because Facebook, it, it, that's how they make their money. Get away from Facebook, folks. Literally, get away from it. And do some real digging. Do some real truth. Dig deep. It's so many people ignorant to the fast what's going on. They don't even know what's really going on. Get away from Facebook. Please do. Facebook is just a waste of time. And you got to get away from that. Because I'm going to tell you something. It's... If they are snut, they they if they are uh, purging conservatives out, that means that us conservatives need to find another way to do business that is online, and we need to do it very quickly because if we don't, then here we go, we're gonna be in the matrix of Facebook. So that's why I advise everyone to. You need. We need to have a plan. I already got a plan ready, scheduled, and done. What is your plan? What is your goal? 
I know a lot of people who do got those, got a plan, already know the end game. So what is yours? Well, we're going to go here. This is, this is, this, I want to go here because now you probably want to know why this one. <laughs> you believe me, you want to know. This here is to prove what it is to be a social justice warrior. This person is in public education, teaching impressible minds about social justice. And she, the person who's doing, she literally, literally, <laughs> unbelievable, literally believe what she's doing is right. She do. And, you know, it's sad. It's sad to see that. But she really believes she's doing what's right. But don't take my word for it. I want you to listen to it for yourself. Then I'm going to give you the opposite side of it. And once you see the opposite side of it, of why we need to teach conservatism the way it needs to be taught, then you will see why it's important to get away from being an activist to become an educator on truth about God. To educate people about conservatism, but mainly teaching them about Christianity. Because Christianity and conservatives work hand in hand. It's almost like um, two twins. And I said this every time on these type of matters here. You got conservatism, you got Christianity, you got conservatism. True bona fide reform Christianity that is coming from the Bible that is absolute. Everything in the Bible is absolute. Code makes you become conservative. You just simply cannot become conservative just because it's great day. It's a trinity. It's not trinity. It's your life. It's just like a person who's a Muslim, right? They believe in Islam. That's their life. So if that's their life, what makes it that Christianity is? That means you got to truly be in the word of God and constantly be in the word of God to formulate Christianity. To become a child God. Why? Because without God, none of this will be possible. Listen to this whole thing. Listen to this whole thing from the Boston Area Education Educators about social justice. Okay? And once you see, because it is it is a conference call, and it's, it is it happened. In um, 2011, not too long ago, but it is a social justice day. And I'm going to read to you what it is. If you go to their website, it's called besj.wibbly.com, right? It talks about this thing. They had a conference this year, okay? April, uh, April 7th of this year. Here is, if you look at the website, it's called the Boston Area Education for Social Justice Conference. Our story, our future have a hand, just like what? Antifa, Black Lives Matter, and white and black nationalists and socialists and no um, supremacists. They all have the same logo. They're all the same. If you look at it, look at how they got it. Ball fist. 
want to say this is our right. And this is how it is. You need to go to the check out and website. Because this here is talking about social justice war. Lots of people involved. I mean, you name it. It's this here proves that this here is evil. So, no further ado, I want you to check it out. Then, we're going to go ahead and flip the time and introduce you about teacher conservatism. Hi everyone, welcome to the show. I'm Marie Celestin. Today we have another exciting topic organization to talk about. With me in the studio is Jessica Tang, who will be talking about an upcoming conference. It's the Boston Area of um, Educators for Social Justice. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So I was so excited to learn about the upcoming conference. Um, I've heard about the group, but I didn't know there was something coming so soon. So I'm so glad you're able to come in and tell viewers a little bit about what's coming up. But I wanted to start by talking about um, your background, because I know you've been doing this type of work, community and social justice, um, sort of organizing for a long time. So how did that come about as a sort of the kind of work you do? Sure. Um, so I'm a Boston public school teacher, okay. and I'm currently at the Young Achievers School in Mattapan, and I also taught at the Gavin Middle School in South Boston for a number of years. And throughout that time, I've just been doing a lot of community organizing work, um, social justice work out inside and outside of the classroom. Okay. So I've been involved in a number of organizations, for example, Reflect and Strengthen, mm -hmm. yeah. um, Insight Boston, which yeah. is how um, we connected, and then also um, through the Massachusetts Asian American Educators Association mm -hmm. and community partners. So education is definitely my yeah, passion. So the so theme I've been is doing, always Right, so that, I've been doing a lot of yeah. education and social justice work. Um, oh, that's great. I mean, I think that's kind of, I mean, typically as someone who's trained to be a teacher, like social justice is not typically a theme where you kind of learn as a, you know, as a key skill to be an educator. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you can probably go through school and never even discuss social justice or even well, any other. Well, that's what we're trying to change, actually. <laughs> so, yeah. so, you know, so I guess like we could, yeah. But because I'm thinking mm -hmm. as, you know, depending on when, like, let's say you went to school or how long you've been teaching, I mean, I think things have been gradually changing depending mm -hmm. on the school system you're in, but mm -hmm. I don't really know if it's, like, one of those themes that's really embraced. Um, mm -hmm. So is that how, is that what, in a way, sort of inspired you, the activism you've been doing to integrate that with your education? Yeah, absolutely. I actually kind of went into education because of my commitment to social justice, okay. um, because I think education and, and, and justice go hand in mm -hmm. hand. Um, and so I think that's actually one of the reasons why this conference is so important to us, too, is that a lot of teachers are, want to teach with a social justice perspective, and we need to really define for ourselves what is social justice education and how do we as teachers implement social justice education mm -hmm. into the classroom. And a lot of us, I think, try to do it individually within isolated classrooms, right. but we don't always get a chance to share resources or share our methodology, our pedagogy. Mm -hmm. How do we do it? Um, what are the resources out there? Okay. And so that's one, definitely one of the goals of the conference True. is to bridge all those gaps and mm -hmm. connect all these people who may have similar ideas about how they want to instruct or how they want to incorporate a social justice um, okay. perspective into the classroom. Great. So I know the conference is open to educators, activists, and others who... Parents, wait. students, <laughs> anyone who's interested in kind of joining the movement. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. So for those who, you know, let's say you're not an organizer or even someone who work within that field, how do you define social justice in the context of public education? Actually, in general, how do you define uh, that's, it? No, that's a great question. And actually, that's one of um, the questions that we have for our morning panel mm -hmm. is to define social justice education. I mean, for myself, um, social justice education is about 
giving students the tools and knowledge that mm -hmm. they need to create a more just society. And a lot of times I think, um, I do have like a social studies background, okay. so I, I think a lot of times it falls on social studies teachers, but in reality, you know, every aspect of our life, mm -hmm. um, it touches upon a lot of these social right. issues. And in every classroom, whether it be art or math or science, um, there are ways to study something and learn about something mm -hmm. that provides us with opportunities to do critical thinking, mm. um, to think about what is just, what is fair, how do we make things more just, um, what is our power as individuals, mm. um, what knowledge do we need, what are the tools that we need, and that can be incorporated into any classroom, yeah. I think. And so that's definitely yeah, something I can, I can imagine some skeptics thinking, how do you even fit this into science or math? I mean, I think there are some curriculum where it seemed like such a good fit, you know, mm -hmm. like social studies or history or even some other electives in the classroom or in the mm -hmm. school that may seem like a good fit. So, I mean, what would you say to those people who may say, you know, how would I even begin to incorporate that in that I would say, those subjects? Absolutely. And I'd say, um, I think a lot of people have that question. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, our conference on Saturday, we have Mary Frankenstein mm -hmm. who's doing a workshop on radical math. Oh, wow. So how do you incorporate these social justice concepts into math teaching? Mm -hmm. um, we have a couple of teachers doing um, workshops on how to incorporate social justice into drama and theater mm -hmm. teaching, mm -hmm. and then also in even art class. Um, and so it is possible, mm -hmm. and I think that sometimes people don't necessarily make the connections quickly, mm -hmm. and that's exactly why we're trying to do this, is to share ideas okay. and to share practices that um, that work that we don't mm -hmm. always have access to or learn about. Yeah, I mean, I think meeting the people who are doing it and also learning about best practices, I mean, I think it's a good way to kind of shatter sort of like all the maybe naysayers or, you know, if just if you can't even imagine, like, how do you do it? Because mm -hmm. as I was saying earlier, like, I don't really know in most teacher education program if that's even a priority in terms of, you know, young teachers who are coming in or those who are interested in education if mm -hmm. that's even an option mm -hmm. um, for example so I mean I think it's great to even see it for example um, in action so if someone mm -hmm. says oh, I've been doing this for mm -hmm. X number mm -hmm. of years mm -hmm. to actually see that it's possible so exactly. let's talk about um, how the idea of even holding a conference in Boston came about uh, we were talking sure. a little bit about that before getting on yeah sure absolutely um, so I think that Right now, education has been in the news a lot. It's mm -hmm. been in the media a lot, um, and a lot of teachers actually, I feel, feel like feel attacked yes. or and, and feel very demoralized mm -hmm. by what's going on um, in the media. And so, throughout this last year, there've been a number of groups of teachers in Boston, um, small groups of teachers who this is very much a grassroots movement, mm -hmm. um, who've been gathering and talking about well, what can we do. Um, what can we do to support each other? What can we do to make sure that the policy changes and the changes that are happening to teachers and schools and, most importantly, students mm -hmm. are really benefiting students? And so a lot of little groups have been getting together and um, uh, myself and some other organizers, um, Jose Lopez mm -hmm. and Ross Kochman, they both started a small group and then Garrett and a whole bunch of teachers mm -hmm. and we basically realized you know um, we should come together and become a more unified group mm -hmm. and we decided to create teacher activist group and um, it was oh, I think I have your website on there. Um, yeah the, the yeah. teacher activist group yeah so it's www.tagboston.org and 
we basically wanted to provide a forum for teachers who were like-minded to get their voice heard and also get supported and share resources, et cetera. And, and this happens in a lot of cities already. So San Francisco, mm -hmm. I know, has Educators for Social Justice. Um, New York City has New York Coalition of Radical Educators, NYCOR. And we're like, why doesn't this exist in Boston? So we decided to start it. And while we started this, at the same time, there was a group of teachers in Brookline mm -hmm. who had a similar idea. Oh, and so they came up with the idea for a conference um, and they're, they're Boston Area Educators for Social Justice. Mm -hmm. And we joined forces and realized that, you know, we both had very similar interests and ideas. And between all of us um, organizers, we were able to put this together. Okay. And um, so it really was a grassroots yeah. effort where we came together, heard about each other's work, and then decided to collaborate. Yeah, that's always a plus, especially so. in this tough you know, economic time where resources seem to be getting more scarce in terms of budget cuts and so on. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of surprised when I heard we didn't have a group because there's so much activism in Boston mm -hmm. or even in the greater Boston area, including Cambridge, Brookline and, and other cities that mm -hmm. I just thought like it's something that should have existed. Absolutely. And so, we too and that we were all so surprised it didn't. So we're like, well we need to yeah. create it if yeah. you know if it doesn't already exist. And that's one of our questions too is why hasn't it happened? Yeah. Or, you know, I think it has happened in the past, but then why does it fizzle mm -hmm. away? Mm -hmm. And you know, what do we need to do to sustain the movement and sustain the community okay. and um, you know, sustain the collaboration and the sharing of resources mm -hmm. and practices and okay. And also to be proactive about making sure that the policies and the um, ideas that we think really are going to benefit students mm -hmm. um, are the ones that are pushed forward and that teacher voices and student voices and parent community voices are really heard in this decision making and policy making okay. as well. So what do you, ho I mean I know, um, let's talk about the day for example in terms of I know there's a panel mm -hmm. in the beginning, um, sort of walk us through the day like what can someone expect if, if, if they're interested in registering? Sure, so from 9 to 10 a.m. is registration, and um, we're working on actually um, a special opportunity during okay. that time, <laughs> um, which isn't um, quite finalized yet. Um, but the conference starts at 10 o'clock, and we're hoping to launch with a student performance. And then we're going to get into the morning panel. And the morning panel, we're going to be joined by Suzanne Lee, who is a 35-year veteran of BPS, she mm. was a teacher and a principal, and also Mariama White-Hammond, who is executive director and founder of Project Hip Hop, mm -hmm. and does, has done a lot of youth community organizing work oh, in Boston, and then a student, um, Carlos Rojas, who has um, been involved with BSAC and um, also has been involved with the push the student-led push for ethnic studies in oh, BPS. Okay. And so the three of them are going to lead um, us into a discussion on what is social justice education, um, what is the social education movement, what are the barriers, but what are the hopes for mm -hmm. building a movement, and you know why they are education activists, what keeps them inspired, and keeps them you know doing the work that they do. And so that's going to be the morning. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to have um, two workshop sessions. And we have over 20 workshops to choose from wow. at this point. And then after that, it's lunch. Mm -hmm. And even during lunch, lunch. We're, yeah, we're, it's a working <laughs> lunch. Um, we have a, we're going to have a resource fair. So okay. there's going to be tables of um, local community organizations that are involved in social justice work so that teachers can have access to those organizations okay. and resources. And then we also have table tents where mm -hmm. we want teachers, if they have specific questions or issues that they want to discuss, to be able to 
discuss them mm -hmm. and so you can create your own topic and make a table tent and mm -hmm. anyone who's interested in that topic can join you in that conversation and then after lunch is the third workshop session okay. and that is followed by our closing panel roundtable and we're very very lucky to have um, Teresa Perry mm -hmm. um, Simmons College um, she's a well-known author and mm -hmm. education activist and um, also Jose Lopez, who's actually one of our organizers and a BPS teacher, and um, another student, Sasha De La Cruz, mm -hmm. who will be there as mm -hmm. well, too. And that's our closing roundtable. And then there's last, <laughs> but there's more, and then last but not least, um, yeah. we really want this to be a jumping off point for people to take action. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to have um, breakout action groups okay. where if there's anything else that people really wanted to come to the conference mm -hmm. and talk about or get resources for or learn more about, that that's their last opportunity to get that going. Okay. And to also even start um, thinking about iTags, mm -hmm. um, which are inquiry to action groups. Um, that's one of our goals in TAG Boston is to get teachers um, to lead themselves mm -hmm. in inquiry to action. So whatever topic it is that they want to learn more about, that they can find other like-minded colleagues and individuals who can support them and research mm -hmm. and right. learn mm -hmm. and, um, you know, grow and reflect and, mm -hmm. and become better educators. Yeah, that's the other thing I was thinking about in terms of as, you know, whether it's veteran teachers and new teachers in the classroom, for example, as they are continuing their education, um, especially in grad school or even undergrad, to think about how do we steady this process, you know, to kind of making sure, because a lot of time when you're doing stuff that's academic in nature, it's almost like, okay, where's the research that says that social justice actually mm -hmm. work? You know what I mean? So it's mm -hmm. one of those things that people have been doing and you know it, but I know there are others who are gonna say, okay, where's the data that says that it's mm -hmm. important to have social justice and it does have a positive impact in students' education, for example. So do you think people will be thinking about that as a possible research um, down the line? I actually, I really think the research is out there. It's done, And okay. you know, I wish I had, could you yeah. know, name it off the top of my head, mm -hmm. but I think ultimately, you know, it comes down to what do you think is the purpose of education? Right. And for a lot of us, I think it's to really love learning, to mm -hmm. love knowledge, to um, be able to have the knowledge to take action to right. make our communities better. And I think that social justice education does those things. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it inspires you to want to learn, it connects you to what you already know, um, and then also helps you to think about, well, I need to have knowledge in order to take action, right? right? Um, so. Um, is it knowledge is power, right? Yeah. And so um, the kind of knowledge that we want students to have mm -hmm. is the knowledge that will empower them and to make them feel like they can change the things that they see in the world that may not be just and they can do something mm -hmm. about it. Um, so I think the research is definitely out there. Oh, they're just, and, yeah. Um, I know Jeffrey Duncan Andrade and um, Ernest Morell, who mm -hmm. has visited Boston a couple times now, um, can speak to the power of engaging students in social justice. Right. I mean, I know um, probably in specific places like San Francisco, you mentioned, and probably Boston in terms of the pockets of, you know, whether it's classrooms or educators who've been working on this, but it's not something that's necessarily as uniform as, mm -hmm. you know, sort of other topics that's sort of like acceptable curriculum subjects to be thought you know what I mean so mm -hmm. that's one of the reason like I'm sure the research is there but I don't know if it's a huge priority as other things especially when we're living like in a 
culture of testing yeah. and how do we measure this right. and all that kind of stuff. So it seemed right. like there will be some will ask questions. Like I know I don't have those questions mm -hmm. because it just seemed like such a good fit. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned, you know, thinking about um, the purpose of education. It's like one of those things that everybody right. learn about in terms of okay, what is it for, mm -hmm. which I'm sure today is very different than you know, centuries ago, and every right. generation, it's right. it's different. And that's definitely a concern of ours. You know, I think one of the problems with MCAS testing, and even right now, I know that the state is looking at new teacher evaluations, mm -hmm. and there's a big push to link test scores to teacher evaluations. Mm -hmm. And you know, that that is that's not something we've organized around per se specifically. Mm -hmm. But I think that is um, one of actually we are, do have workshop. Um, by uh, Monty from Fair Test mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. this because they think there's a lot of misinformation. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of problems with even value added models. Mm -hmm. um, there's a statistician who just came out with a report and said that we cannot rely on value added models. Right. And at the same time, even though the education professors mm -hmm. may know this and we may know as teachers that you know teaching to the test or putting too much pressure on tests and linking test scores to mm -hmm. teacher evaluations yep. is not in the best success <laughs> right so. that um but people are still pushing yeah. for that so that's definitely something i think that in the future we want to you know take a closer mm -hmm. look at and you know before all these policies are made and laws are enacted right. um we really need to i think push back and think about is that really what's going to benefit students mm -hmm. Is that going? Is that really going to help us reach us reach the purpose of education? And I think that many of us don't. Right. Um, there's just too much data out there that questions the validity of um, VAM. And at the same time, MCAS is only 17% of teachers are affected by mm -hmm. MCAS or can mm -hmm. even be scored on MCAS. And I don't think the solution, personally, is yes. more testing yeah. or you know being so focused. And data is absolutely important. Mm -hmm. We want to know that we we are as teachers are having an impact right. but teachers know if they have an impact because every day we're evaluating mm -hmm. and assessing right. and figuring out what our students know and don't know yeah and the big focus on standardized tests i think is mm -hmm. definitely a problem yeah but i think opinion. yeah i mean i think that's one of the reasons i think even when we're thinking about research to have teacher initiated research for example or research that are not necessarily traditional mm -hmm. in nature to be able to sort of get that information because mm -hmm. it doesn't always mean it's going to be something like numbers or whatever right. because there are certain things where you're able to collect it where it's useful it's not like okay 50 percent this and x number that where it's like okay right. like what does that say about right. anything so right. um as we we're talking i was thinking about i don't know if there's a connection between there there have been a few films that came out especially waiting for superman that came out um in connection to that i mean do you think i don't know if you've seen the film i have um, if there is any strong opinion in relation to that topic or because again even though you know and it's interesting to see who's leading those discussions sometimes um, mm -hmm. and I think it's kind of it's it's different I think when teachers are leading it or you see parents at the center and students versus there seem to be a huge backlash against teachers where you know the the work is still being done and they are doing the work so I don't mm -hmm. know do you see a connection between what you're trying to do in relation to the focus of that film or what it's you know trying to advocate for absolutely I mean I think right now um, unfortunately uh, there's a lot of divisiveness mm -hmm. it's pitting charter school teachers against traditional school teachers and this against that and um, it's problematic because I think we're losing focus on the larger issues mm -hmm. 
And so I think the teacher attacks have been problematic because it's like blaming teachers for all the problems in right. schools when we forget that, you know, there's been a lot of studies, you know, back to the Coleman studies where, um, you know, poverty is the number one predictor of educational attainment. Mm -hmm. And what we're trying to do, I feel like, is, and I think 10% is, is teachers. But the largest factor in schools is teachers, true. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if we only focus on teachers, we're not looking at the big, bigger picture of addressing poverty. And if we don't address poverty too, then we're missing the largest factor in attaining success. And I think that, you know, there are some charter schools, you know, do better and that's actually only a third though. Mm -hmm. Some, a lot of them are just the same. And there's traditional schools that do better. And um, I think the major problem with charter schools is that it's based on a business model. And um, unfortunately, I don't think that you can transplant the business model into education. Because in the business models, you have winners and losers. And in education, we can't have losers. Mm -hmm. Every student needs to have the opportunity to have a quality education and opportunities that other students have. Right. And um, I just, you know, strongly believe that the charter school movement is almost a distractor. Mm. It's trying to be a silver bullet for a problem that is much more complex than that. And there's a lot of misinformation about charter schools as well. Um, I mean, ultimately, I think every kid should have the opportunity to go to a really great school, but charter schools themselves are not the answer. There's no silver bullet mm -hmm. to this. We need to look at the larger picture of um, the root causes of, of poverty. And yes, of course, the teaching um, profession can be improved right. as well. Yeah. But I, again, I think we're focusing completely on the wrong mm -hmm. things right now. Yeah. Completely. I mean, I think those things, again, as you know, they get so much coverage. And again, that becomes a distraction in terms of, okay, this is, you know, the direction we're going, even though I know the president hasn't necessarily nationally in terms of really having education mm -hmm. um, as a huge agenda topic. So in thinking about that, um, but locally, though, I mean, I think the, an impact can still be made. Do you think there's room to do more professional development around ways to include social justice in the classrooms that are beyond the conference like because I think a lot of time you come together and people get very excited about let's do this and then like what happens in the middle between this year and the next time you guys come together or what's happening individually in your school or communities yeah absolutely um, I think actually that's one of the things that we're trying well, to the conference get out well. yeah it's, it's yeah. just going back to the conferences yeah. you know the majority of teachers work very very hard and try very very hard um, to inspire their students, to get their students to learn, to grow, and want to become better, but don't always feel supported. And I think that's really a missing piece is, you know, we get so focused on um, these, you know, you know, who should be fired and who mm -hmm. should be, you know, um, you know, recognized, but the vast majority of teachers care a lot, work very hard, but don't always know how to get better or have the support from the school to get better or have people around them to support them to be mm -hmm. better. Yeah. And so opportunities like this conference, I think, you know, is it's really grassroots professional development. Mm -hmm. It's like what teachers feel like they need to learn, what teachers want to know, and teachers need to become better teachers. And I think that's where the discussion should really be for, more focused on, is how do we support teachers so that they can support students. Okay. 
And I know you also have parents who Absolutely. will be part of the discussion as well. Is there a specific, let's say, parent group who will be there, or, or some? Because I know sometimes teachers or parents and everyone share mm -hmm. like multiple roles. But is there a specific way where parents are going to be part of the process where they're working together with everybody in terms of thinking about? you know, students' education and their experiences in the classroom. Absolutely. Um, Boston Parent Organizing Network, we've outreached to, and we do think, you know, parents are critical to a child's success. Mm -hmm. You know, we spend a lot of time with our students, but ultimately, you know, what happens at home it has a huge impact on um, their education as well. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things we want to think about, too, is how do we involve more parents and students into these discussions and conversations about improving schools, too. Okay. And so that's definitely a huge piece of what we're trying yeah, to do. Yeah, too. I mean, and I have parents yeah. involved um, in TAG right now, too. Yeah. A lot of the teachers oh, okay. actually have kids in the BPS, and there are also other parents who are involved okay. as well. I mean, I think there's so many stakeholders to think about sometimes. Mm -hmm. We're like, what about this one? And I was also thinking about the superintendent. I don't know how supportive is there any support from that camp at all in terms of the conference or even that subject in general. Yeah, we actually invited the superintendent, so um, okay. I, I don't know if she's coming, to be. but it'd be great to have her. And then, um, but BPS was supportive in actually providing the facilities for okay. our conference That's and great. helping to um, offset some of the costs for our conference okay. to, um, for the facilities. So they've been helpful in that respect. Yeah, I mean, I think it's great to think of, because there are so many different uh, I mean, there are so many conferences that happen, and sometimes it's so separate. Where it's like, okay, this is for teachers, this mm -hmm. is for parents, this is for students. Where it's nice that the conference is going to allow sort of like a space where everyone can come mm -hmm. um, to the table and like talk about all those different issues. Mm -hmm. um, and school is still in session, so mm -hmm. <laughs> so those issues are still pretty fresh. So let's give people some information about if they want. Um, want to register, I know there's still time, mm -hmm. you're still accepting, um, where should they go? They should go to www.besj.weebly.com and you can register at the website. There's also a scheduled conference, um, or conference schedule, I'm sorry, and also you can get an example. So uh, can go on there. See, yep, the different kinds of workshops that we have as well. And um, another resource, so BESJ um, is .weebly.com is the re conference registration website. And then Tag Boston, which is tagboston.org, um, is also another resource. And again, we want to start launching in the fall these inquiry to action groups where teachers are able to really facilitate and research and learn on, on their own um, whatever topic or interest they have. And um, we have other resources on there. We're also asking teachers to write about their perspectives what their school days are like, um, just to give people a counter-narrative to kind of what's in the mainstream media right now. Okay. Um, we really feel that, you know, the, the real teacher voice is not being portrayed in the media in the way that the media is portraying education issues mm -hmm. and um, the way the headlines are, one, divisive, two, inaccurate, um, three, blaming the wrong people, and not really talking about, you know, what the positive conversation should be. And so we're trying to reframe that conversation around education and um, also have a larger teacher voice and uh, alternative perspective to what's happening in education right. instead of mainstream media. So you seem like you have a lot to cover, but thank you so much for being on the show and promoting the conference. And I'm sure the conference is going to be amazing uh, with a great turnout. So, well, we hope so keep us posted. And thank you for watching the show. We'll see you next time. Now, you should be a little bit afraid of what just happened. And I'm going to
really just come to the cuff about all this. The people who is behind all this, this is not just in Boston. This is all over the country, all over America. Do you understand that, you know, and I'm going to put this out here, that this is true. This is me personally, and this is how I feel about this. Now, a lot of people probably don't feel this way, but I feel this way. This is how I feel about it. Here he is. Here he is. Here he is. This is my feeling about it. I don't think we should put any money to the the public education system anymore. I think we should as um, people who do not have nothing to do with public education should opt out personally. Well, tax money with everything. We should opt out of it. Now, a lot of people say, well, how are you going to be the salt of the light? Uh, why you want to be the salt of the light to something if you look at the root landings of public education came from? A lot of the things that public education came from is socialism. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. I have, I'm going to talk to a guest. I'm going to bring a guest in, and we're going to talk about that various thing. What is the social meanings of public education in America came from? And you guys think that this is, no, it is not pretty. Public education came from a socialist. The person who did it was a socialist, did it from Boston as a testing ground for socialism. How much more do you want from me? How much more do you want to know about what's going on here? It's socialism. Enough said. Enough said. But don't take my word for it, okay? You hear it. You see what's going on. But we keep defending them. We need to go back to the public schools and re-educate our children. Why you need to re-educate someone who is not and what is not is not designed to re-educate anything that deals with conservatism, Christian, with deals with Christianity, God, family, country, conservatism, capitalism, anything, even civics, knowing about the government, because it was not designed to. That's the truth. So like I, I, I'm, I'm partnered with um, the grassroots conservative movement, and I had to give credit, credit to with, with uh, these, uh, these people, Corey and, and Alan Duncan, for what they are doing to bring back the the education to the youth, Christianity into the core of the. No, with people. Also, Project Purpose. They're doing exactly the same thing with Corey and them doing. Corey is building these schools. Um, and Project Purpose is going into the inner city and pull these kids out of the hell damn. These these uh, two organizations that are conservative-minded and Christian is Christian and conservative-minded. Christian conservatism. All in one implode. All doing the same thing with one common goal to bring back God into the lives of our future. That's why I support these two organizations 100%. And why? Because these organizations are the ones that are doing something that are producing fruit. All this stuff is going on Facebook that people are doing. They're not trying to go and, uh, uh, 
you know, teaching the youth, you waste the time. If you're serious about trying to really emanate and make a foundation for your future, you need to get away from Facebook. Literally. Get away from, get away. Just get away. Okay? But let's go and go to the flip side is. Now, we talk about something that is powerful here. Okay? About conservatism. At this conference, it was, it happened in 2016, September 1st, September 21st, 2016. It's called Education for Liberty. And I'm going to tell you the people who's behind all this, which, you know, pretty much trying to teach conservatism. But Corey, Anna, Donald Murphy, Casper Stockhand, and others, and even here at RCR, these are the things that's going on here. You got a, a, a whole panel of professionals from Dennis Prager. You got um, the um, uh, people from the William F. Buckley Jr. Society. You have conservative act, you know, people who not talk about activism but teaching about conservatism. How are we going to get our youth to understand the truth about conservatism if we don't give them the tools for it? Well, let's go and listen to this conference. This is part of it, not all of it, that happened about teacher conservatism because you need to understand what you need to do. And after that, we're going on the flip side of this whole thing. Stay tuned. Good morning, everyone, and thanks uh, for coming out. Uh, for us East Coast folks, it's actually heading into noon, so uh, this is a, we all should be pretty awake. Um, so uh, this morning we're talking, our panel is going to be on teaching conservatism in the 21st century, and I've been excited about this topic for months. I'm very eager to hear uh, what, what the panelists have to say this morning. Uh, we have three uh, extraordinary uh, individuals with us. We have Dr. Jeff Nelson from the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, Mr. Skip Castrol. Uh, from Liberty University, and Mr. Alan Estrin from the Dennis Prager Show and from Prager University. And so we'll hear more from them in a little bit. Uh, they will be discussing, in part, some of the difficulties that conservative students and faculty face in academia today. And, and we just heard a little story by Nick about that. Um, one of our objectives, however, is to hopefully propose uh, some alternative solutions, both to how we engage from within the university and how we reach students uh, outside the university walls, which is a big part of, uh, we, we do both of those at ISI. So each panelist will speak uh, for roughly 10 minutes, and then uh, at the close of all three, I'm going to ask them a few opening questions, and then we'll turn it over to you to ask any questions you have. So I encourage you to be writing them down now. You all have uh, a pen and pad in front of you. Uh, so please start uh, listing those right out. Uh, however, to open the panel, I, I want to give a little context. Uh, I'd like to suggest, first off, that the recent havoc that we see in universities, such as the story we heard this morning, uh, is it demonstrates that both students and faculty are becoming increasingly willing to suppress the beliefs of anyone they uh, think makes students feel unsafe or uncomfortable. Uh, that's why we have these, these safe zones, so you can apparently not uh, ever be uncomfortable or unsafe in the, in the university space. Um, as the American Council on Trustees and Alumni recently uh, eloqu eloquently stated, too many colleges and universities have been unwilling, uh, have been willing to capitulate to strong-arm tactics that undermine the pursuit of truth, especially when it comes to the most difficult and controversial subjects of the day. 
uh, when one looks at the landscape of higher education, it may be easy to be left somewhat uh, remorseful. Uh, the liberal arts are being stripped away both from K through 12 and post-secondary institutions uh, and any dissenting voice, especially a conservative one, in many cases, and we've seen this firsthand, is met with extreme hostility and some, sometimes violence. Uh, this is one of the major reasons I came to ISI. Uh, you know, we, are, we are taking active steps uh, at training student leaders. Uh, we have, we're cultivating campus societies. We're cultivating campus newspapers. We're bringing students out to regional and national events. And uh, we are creating, and this will be discussed a little bit this morning, some innovative new online ways to reach students as well, uh, kind of outside the university. Um, so uh, despite what may seem like a rather bleak picture of where higher education is right now, there are bastions of hope. And ISI, I believe, is one of the greatest of those, and that's why I'm here. Uh, we, with the, uh, so many programs already and increasing the, the way we reach to students, and grounding them, uh, students from any discipline in Western tradition. And we prepare them for roles, hopefully as future thought leaders, who are, are prepared and willing to combat some of this craziness that we're seeing uh, in colleges and universities today. Uh, so finally, to kick off our panel, I don't, I'm, I'm just introducing everyone, I'm taking a little bit of time here. Uh, I'd like to show two brief videos. Uh, these kind of capture rather unorth unorthodox, uh, but extraordinarily powerful way uh, that organizations and, and soon ISI will be reaching students uh, and capturing their attention in ways that they would not otherwise be able to get this content in their, in their normal classrooms. Uh, the first video is from a project at the Institute for Humane Studies, uh, where Nick mentioned I worked before. Um, and the second video will be uh, a clip from Prager University's The Least Free Place in America course. Uh, both of these have reached hundreds of thousands of, of uh, people thirsty for this type of content, but literally unable to get it. Uh, through traditional means. Uh, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to the videos and I'll, I'll wrap up my comments in a minute. How far in debt is the U.S. government? Let's put the numbers in perspective. If we stacked up individual $100 bills, $100 million would look like this. If we added up the annual incomes of everyone in the top 1%, they would total about $2 trillion. That's 20,000 pallets of $100 million each. This is the total value of all assets the US government currently owns, about $3 trillion. In 2015, the federal government collected $3.2 trillion in taxes and spent $3.8 trillion. The government had to borrow the difference, which brought its total debt at the end of 2015 to $19 trillion. For comparison, the annual output of the whole U.S. economy is only $18 trillion. But there's more. In addition to its debt, the government owes what are called unfunded obligations. These are future Social Security and Medicare payments that the government has promised to retirees, but which it does not have the money to pay. The present value of unfunded obligations is about $70 trillion. That means that the total amount of money the U.S. government either owes or has promised and cannot pay is almost $90 trillion. That figure is nearly 40% higher than it was just five years ago. And it's about $10 trillion more than the annual economic output of the entire planet. Click here to see Learn Liberty's original debt video from five years ago. For more videos from me and other professors talking about economics, subscribe to Learn Liberty. How important is free speech on a college campus? 
Here's what the Supreme Court said in 1957 in the landmark case Sweezy v. New Hampshire. Teachers and students must always remain free to inquire, otherwise our civilization will stagnate and die. Inspiring words and true. Which is why what's happening in American colleges and universities is so disturbing. A study conducted by the Association of American Colleges and Universities in 2010 revealed that only 30% of college seniors strongly agreed with the question, is it safe to hold unpopular positions on this campus? Worse, the study found that students' confidence that they can hold unpopular opinions declines from freshman to senior year. How can it be that at a place where speech should be the most free, the university, young people fear merely holding to say nothing of actually expressing unpopular opinions? The reason is that for decades now, students have been sent a clear message from their schools. Express dissenting opinions, violate political correctness, or even just criticize the administration at your peril. After working for 12 years at the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, I have seen hundreds of examples of students in peril. Here are just a few. At Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, a student employee was found guilty of racial harassment for publicly reading a book that some of his fellow employees found offensive. The book was Notre Dame versus the Klan, and it was available in the school's library. It recounted and celebrated the defeat of the Ku Klux Klan when its members marched on Notre Dame in 1924. So what did the university find offensive? The photo on the book's cover. At the University of Delaware, students were forced to undergo ideological re-education as part of the university's compulsory student orientation program. The program was described as treatment for students with incorrect attitudes and beliefs. Students were taught to adopt highly specific university-approved views on politics, race, sexuality, sociology, moral philosophy, and environmentalism. They were also required to attend one-on-one -on -one meetings with their resident assistants, where they were compelled to answer intrusive, probing, and utterly irrelevant personal questions such as, when did you discover your sexual identity? And an increasing number of schools are trying to drive religious students off campus. Vanderbilt University, for example, has enacted a policy that forbids faith-based student groups from selecting members and leaders based on their faith. As a result, 14 Christian groups have been de-recognized by the university. Then there are speech codes at a majority of American colleges and universities. What is a speech code? It is a university regulation or policy that limits or bans expression, written or verbal, that is protected under the First Amendment. Such codes are applied with glaring double standards against religious, conservative, or politically incorrect speech, or simply speech that a particular campus administration happens to dislike. All right, I love that quote from Sweezy versus New Hampshire uh, in the PragerU video. It says, teachers and students must always remain free to inquire. Otherwise, our civilization will stagnate and die. This is exactly why ISI is cultivating current and future leaders on college campuses. It's why we work with thousands of faculty, really from all over the world, uh, to bring back that discussion and debate around the foundational ideas of limited government, individual responsibility, and free markets. That is why we are seeking ways not only to change the current system from within, but also to develop innovative new ways of bringing this content uh, to, to folks outside the university, bringing uh, this content to students where they can't find it in the university. So with that, I'm going to turn over to our first panelist, Dr. Jeff Nelson. He's going to flesh out the landscape of higher education uh, kind of from a macro perspective and uh, talk about why the time to innovate is upon us. 
Uh, Dr. Nelson is the vice president, senior vice president of educational programs at ISI. He holds a bachelor's from University of Detroit, a master's from Yale University Divinity School, and a PhD in American history from University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Uh, he has uh, quite an impressive array of publications. I won't go into everything, but he has been at ISI since 91. Uh, he left for a brief time to be president of a college and came back and, and now kind of leads the way on our forthcoming uh, politics, philosophy, and edu uh, economics curriculum. And uh, I get to work uh, daily very close with Jeff, so uh, please welcome him up to uh, give his comments. Thanks, Josh. Um, well, as Josh suggested, um, the challenges facing higher education are both of uh, concern and uh, opportunity uh, for conservatives. Uh, setting aside for a minute the politicization of the curriculum, which is a systemic condition, factors such as easy student loan money leading to $1.2 trillion in student debt, advances in technology, declining graduation rates, and astonishing increases in costs and tuition are combining to hasten change and open up new entrepreneurial possibilities. The current regulatory system, which protects high-cost, regionally accredited campus-based institutions from competition shows signs of fraying, as regional accreditors and even the Department of Education are putting more pressure on college administrators to find ways to remedy this situation. The desperation many feel today in the face of these fact uh, factors is captured in the following incident. Did you hear about the banker who was arrested for embezzling $100,000 to pay for his daughter's college education? As the police officer, who also had a daughter in college, was leading him away in handcuffs, he said to the banker, I have just one question for you. Where were you going to get the rest? From the earliest years of our movement, uh, conservatives have sounded the alarm about the degradation of higher education and written some of the most devastating indictments of it from virtually every angle. When the patron of our gathering, William F. Buckley Jr., wrote God a Man at Yale and helped to found ISI in the early 1950s, he recognized that in higher education, collectivism was winning the battle against individualism. In the ensuing 50 years, conservatives steadily created what some called a shadow university. In these shadow or para-university organizations, conservative ideas were mostly sidelined outside the main playing fields of colleges and universities, even as they were having growing influence in the public sphere. There are signs that suggest change is on the way, and the conservatives might be in a position to begin reversing some of these losses. One sign that conservatism is beginning to extend out from the para-university institutions onto the campuses themselves is the growth of privately funded academic centers that preserve and promote knowledge and perspectives which otherwise are in danger of altogether disappearing from the academy. The James Madison program at Princeton is credited with launching this movement to retake ground within the university itself when it opened doors in 2000. Eight years later, in 2008, there were 37 such centers. In the intervening years, from 2008 until 2016, that number has now grown to more than 150 ac academic centers studying and promoting Western civilization, its key ideals and institutions. ISI has played a role in financially supporting a number of these academic beachheads and today supports and coordinates academic program at many of them. Last year, ISI worked with some of these groups and affiliated faculty to test a pilot project at about a half a dozen schools aimed at supporting professors in the development of freshman-level courses on liberty. We offered course development grants of up to $5,000 to professors to develop syllabi for courses on religious liberty, economic liberty, and political liberty. 
in addition to creating some amazing co course content, one thing we learned was just how much goodwill and support a small financial outlay purchased for our faculty and their students. Departments are cash-starved, and as long as these academic offerings are rigorous and non-ideological, many administrators and faculty embraced them, <coughs> and, they looked, uh, and they embraced the added resources they bring. These departments often also lack the bandwidth to create and teach essential classes on their own. That is where ISI can come in and support needed change with high quality content and its own network of accomplished faculty. To that end, ISI will launch this fall a major new project, its Intercollegiate Philosophy, Politics, and Economics program. The centerpiece of the Intercollegiate Philosophy, Politics, and Economics, or IPPE program is a new curriculum that IOSI will use in its educational programs as well as make available for certification to a wider audience. We are in the midst of a credentials craze, according to the Chronicle of Higher Education. More than ever, colleges are recognizing independent certification programs. At the moment, they tend toward vocational skills, technology and coding, and business and finance. However, evidence suggests there is growing demand for high-quality humanities certification programs that can impart a valuable body of knowledge in counting, mounting civic ignorance, negative learning, and deteriorating critical skills. Across the board, the popularity of short-term certification programs is on the rise. The new IPPE program is an interdisciplinary, cost-effective, and flexible approach for students to receive a broad liberal arts education that prepares them to become leaders. We believe IPPE certification can become a valuable credential and assist students in, in securing career positions in which they can make a difference. Our big vision is that ISI's PPE certification will become for the humanities what the Chartered Financial Analyst, or CFA, credential is for investment professionals. As the Brookings Institution noted earlier this year, many employers are concerned about great inflation, about great inflation, often saying that college degrees are no longer reliable assurances of knowledge or competence. The IPPE program is designed to assuage these concerns by testing and certifying students' mastery of important core ideas. The concept is inspired by Ox Oxford University's successful PPE program created in 1920, which has produced scores of world leaders and other influential alumni, including David Cameron, George Will, and Rupert Murdoch, to name just a very few. In the United States the, the last two decades, we've, uh, there, the universities have seen the creation of PPE programs at nearly 50 universities and colleges. For some of them, PPE is a standalone major. For others, PPE is a certificate or minor that remains interdisciplinary. One reason PPE is important is because economic and political theory and their philosophical foundations have become increasingly interdisciplinary at the same time the classroom pedagogy has become more stovepiped. But a liberal education must connect the policy questions and ethical problems of the day with the legacy of arguments and intellectual development that transcend narrow disciplinary stovepipes. The world is disinclined to recognize the artificial boundaries of academic disciplines. PPE programs cross the local institutional boundaries that separate departments and the intellectual fences that prevent useful discussions and the cross-fertilization of ideas. The PPE model has proved to be a leadership development program. It is also effective in teaching students the dimensions of freedom, because educating for liberty 
is an interdisciplinary pursuit by definition. PPE for many colleges has the potential to retake the intellectual high ground and restore the classical canon to the undergraduate curriculum. The centerpiece of the IPPE program will be six courses that will be taught by prominent professors and policy experts through a combination of online courses and traditional ISI on-campus conferences. The subject areas are philosophy in the good life, philosophy in the utopian temptation, the roots of American constitutionalism, American constitutionalism and its critics, how markets work, and economics and the pursuit of happiness. We have received enthusiastic feedback on these courses from more than 150 experienced educators. One comment I received was especially on point. Our young people are tired of having their time wasted on whatever flavor of indignation studies happens to have caught the fancy of the professoriate this year. Students yearn, students yearn for readings of substance and questions of enduring importance. That is exactly what us ISI has always aimed to deliver. And so throughout this curriculum, students will study the greats, Plato and Aristotle, John Stuart Mill and C.S. Lewis, Edmund Burke and Solzhenitsyn, Magna Carta and the Federalist Papers, Tocqueville and Lincoln, Adam Smith and Frederick Hayek, among many others. As the first step toward the creation of the full IPPE program, ISI will design and execute a pilot course on how markets work during the fall of this year. The goal is to produce a focus group course experience that will garner for ISI feedback needed to scale the full online program for delivery to hundreds of students. It will begin with a group of 25 students engaging in six weeks of online coursework. Students also will be offered a scholarship to attend one of ISI's regional weekend programs to foster value, valuable personal interaction. The online content will include up to 20 high-quality produced original videos and will be structured as an experiment that will not only allow us to solicit feedback from a variety of students at strategic campuses, but will also provide useful data for future decisions about the ways in which the program can scale up. ISI is already assembling a consortium of colleges and universities committed to help leverage the IPPE program on campuses nationwide. Currently, we are exploring partnership opportunities to secure the option of transfer credits for interested students, to co-develop original online courses and programs with select universities, to co-sponsor IPPE conferences from one to six weeks in duration, and to develop traditional major or certificate programs from the IPPE curriculum. ISI will also create a resource to link PPE alumni with potential employers and related opportunities. We are truly at the beginning of this innovative curriculum project, but the potential for exponential growth in program participation is already evident. Today's students increasingly are looking for alternative programs that cap educational experiences with uniquely focused curri uh, curricular, curricula that offer entry to a national network. Employers, too, are looking for innovative ways to validate knowledge and skills and are seeking out new pipelines of talent capable of meeting the challenges of today's dynamic workplace. ISI anticipates that in the humanities space, its new PPE certification program will be a high-quality answer to that search. The time appears to be right, for as the Chronicle of Higher Education recently editorialized, colleges need to realize they are no longer the only gatekeepers of higher education. And while the founder of the, and the founder of the MOOC aggregator, Class Central, recently predicted that moving forward, credentials 
are what will be more sustainable. That's what the big providers feel. A lot of new courses that are coming up are part of a credential. They are not just random courses. They are part of something bigger. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jeff. Uh, your point about uh, the academy being in the middle of a credentials craze is uh, particularly relevant, I think, to our next topic uh, that Skip Castro will be speaking on. Uh, Skip comes to us, as I mentioned earlier, from Liberty University, where he is the Senior Director of Institutional Effectiveness. Uh, he has an undergraduate degree in economics and mathematics from the University of North Florida and is just wrapping up his doctoral dissertation in education from Liberty University. Uh, he speaks uh, with hundreds of faculty, uh, both at Liberty University and all over the country on the topic of educational accreditation and compliance and program assessment. So uh, his experience in that, in that regard is, is very relevant, I think, for the topic that we're talking about this morning, or that he's going to be talking about this morning, uh, which is the over-politicalization of the university. And we've already kind of hinted at that several times already. Uh, in particular, he's going to be discussing the advent of over-regulation over uh, the obstacles accreditation and compliance federal standards place on edu uh, legitimate educational institutions, and uh, hopefully some unique solutions uh, to this. So please join me in welcoming Mr. Skip Castro. Good job. In spite of some of these um, scary things that I think we've seen on the video this That's morning, it shouldn't surprise anyone that the American system of higher education is still widely regarded as one of the best educational systems in the world. Um, Americans place a great deal of confidence in their college and universities as a path to prosperity and success, as I'm sure many of you in your, in your degrees could talk through um, how that has changed you and made you um, who you are today. Um, foreign students also come to college and universities to earn their undergraduate and advanced degrees. Um, so overall, college and universities have seen increased enrollments, you know, albeit with significant changes in demographics and the skill levels of incoming students. Um, yet recent news coverage and um, even early this morning, um, reveals some deep underlying anxieties about the American system of higher education. Uh, students and their parents express concerns about the rising costs, something you'll also hear from the elected officials. Um, faculty are uh, bemoaning the declining status of the tenure system, their own um, uh, level of students. Uh, administrators are lamenting budget cuts, um, pressures from government agencies, as well as increasing pressures from accreditation agencies. Um, for example, just to give you a little taste of this, uh, several years ago the Department of Defense came to Liberty University and um, we have a large online uh, military population and so they have a vested interest in that. Um, so they came there, but their, um, their visit, which came on very short notice, necessitated several of our offices to do about a week's worth of work. Um, and while a week isn't a lot of time, um, one of the uh, recommendations that came from that visit was instruction and curriculum changes. Now, the Department of Defense does a lot of great work, and I'm extremely thankful for what they do, uh, but having external, non-governmental, uh, non-educational government agencies dictating what's taught at a private university is a very slippery slope. Um, and underlying many of these concerns is what, the, um, what higher education actually produces. Um, there's a growing assessment movement that requires colleges and universities to require that students are held to specific academic standards and to document that as well. Um, and while these anxieties have seemed to have little uh, involvement in overall enrollment rates, um, there appears to be clear recognition, as Jeff mentioned, that change is on the horizon. Um, and I think it could be argued and, um, that this um, 
current regulatory system that does protect these high-cost regionally accredited institutions is one of those major changes. Um, uh, for example, uh, a few years ago, the idea of competency-based education was becoming a little bit more mainstream. For those of you that aren't aware, competency-based education is an educational program where students are demonstrating the skills that they've learned, and that's how their progress is tracked through their educational programs, as opposed to the traditional credit hour and you know, course time in the class. Um, so you may know about the College for America at the Southern New Hampshire University. Um, it has an educational program that is competency-based. Um, it started in 2012, and in April of 2013, it received approval from the Department of Education to, for federal funding for the students in that program. Uh, that was a pretty big deal because it was the first program to receive that type of approval for students to receive the federal funding in that program. Um, I mentioned this not as a pitch for the school, but to say that uh, in December of 2013, almost a year after they received Department of Education approval, one of the accrediting agencies published a nine-page document detailing how other institutions might potentially adopt this. Um, it was uh, complete with definitions, characteristics, you know, agency obligations, institutional obligations, and about eight more pages of other things to read. It's extremely riveting paperwork. Um, so um, I point this out. I think there's two points to note about this. One is the timeline. Uh, the time it took the accrediting agency to react to this innovation that started in 2012 left a lot of institutions questioning whether this rather exciting opportunity was even viable or possible, or if they walked down this road, would they then be tripped later on and said, no, you can't do it. Um, so a long time just to figure out if they could or couldn't do it. Secondly, uh, while this nine-page policy document isn't near the length of some other disturbingly long federal reports, um, it does still seem to overcomplicate the ability for an institution to be innovative. Um, and it's very likely that the overregulation um, of the university is done with the best of intentions, um, but it seems very clear at this point that the policy-making process cannot keep up with the necessary innovation that's taking place in the whole of post-secondary education in this country. Uh, all of this is happening when you've got an increasing online growth of students, uh, even between this fall of 13 and fall of 2014, there was a 4% increase in online students. Um, one in every four students is taking at least one online course um, across the nation. Uh, there's also a continued national attention on college completion, and I'm sure we've all heard. Um, but despite this growth and this national attention, uh, you can look and see that the retention rates of students at colleges and universities is decreasing. Uh, so colleges are having an increasingly more difficult time keeping students there. Um, and that leaves many folks, um, many of us, justifiably asking why. Are students expecting something at a college or university that they're not getting? Um, and from my vantage point, I could say the answer is yes. Um, they're not receiving what uh, we would uh, like to see as a broad liberal arts education um, that gives them a framework for seriously encountering some of these ideas that we've talked about and Jeff has mentioned in the, in the IPPE program. Uh, the market's also almost begging for students like this. One example, you know, one of many, is Slack Technology CEO Stuart Butterfield, whose estimated stake in his company is upwards of $300 million. Um, he proudly holds an undergraduate degree from University of uh, Canada's, uh, Canada's Victoria University in philosophy and a master's degree from Cambridge in philosophy and the history of science. Uh, he's gone on to state that philosophy taught, studying philosophy taught him two things. One, how to write clearly and two, how to follow an argument all the way to the end, um, which for those of you that run meetings, that's quite the invaluable skill to have. Um, 
And so, and there's there's a host of other stories like this. Some of these technological programs that have um, uh, people that are running it that have these non-technological degrees. And so, you are if you're excited, you can go read many of the articles that are out about those. Um, you can also look at the job offerings of some of these same companies. Uh, if you look at the sales, the marketing, the support representatives, some of the brand ambassadors, those type of job opportunities far exceed the engineers and the technical side of things. Um, this reminds me of the automobile industry of the 1920s that helped create jobs for people to help fit cars into daily life. You know, your sales, your marketers, your driving instructors, your road crews, and many more. Um, and something similar can be seen today. Uh, MIT professors Eric Benjofson and Andrew McAfee argue something similar in a recent book, um, The Second Machine Age, where they say that today's technological way will um, inspire a new style of work in which the technical skills are done for routine tasks and that leaves people to do what people do best. And that's to generate creative ideas in a data-rich world. Um, now, to be sure, the financial payoff in an engineering or technical degree still remains strong. They earn, on average, more in their late 30s than others in a liberal arts education do. Um, however, um, Catherine Weinberg, an economist at UC Santa Barbara, um, has been analyzing government data from high school students uh, and where they are now, and among her findings are that people with balanced strengths in social and math skills earn, on average, 10% more than their counterparts. Um, and she's found that socially inept math whizzes fare no better than go-getters who don't really have many math skills, to name just one example. Um, one recent ISI student from Harvard stated that ISI gave me an, ed an education that even Harvard couldn't. And I think this rings true for two very good reasons. Uh, first, as Jeff discussed, and as I'm looking forward to hear Alan talk uh, here in a little bit, um, engaging students in conservative ideas is a battleground. Um, I may not see that as much at Liberty, um, and I'm thankful for the opportunity I have to, to work there and talk to some really exciting folks. Uh, but in general, um, conservative is an ultra-minority position in academia, and some reports suggest that upwards of 90% of faculty identify as left or as extreme left. Um, and ISI is well positioned, as, as Josh mentioned, to, um, to continue their decades-long mission of doing what they do. Uh, and secondly, as Josh mentioned in the beginning, ISI has a unique position in the higher education marketplace to innovate without much constraint. Um, and so that's exciting. So the possibilities for the organization and the program, as Jeff mentioned, are um, almost endless. Um, the first step is to engage and develop students in the online space. Um, that's, that's where they live. Um, and, but at the rate of innovation in the academic space and the rigor at which ISI does things, um, you can only expect really exciting things to come after that. Thank you. All right, well, thank you uh, for the fascinating remarks, Skip. Uh, at one point, you mentioned that uh, you said overregulation seems to overcomplicate the ability of an institution to be innovative. You went on to note that uh, while a university may still attempt to innovate, it seems the accreditors cannot, uh, cannot see beyond the historical credit hour. Uh, I think this pairs really nicely with the topic that uh, we're going to talk about now in our, in our third section of the panel. Mr. Alan Estrin uh, will be speaking on this. He is the co-founder of Prager University, which you saw a clip from that in the beginning, and the executive producer of The Dennis Prager Show, which I'm sure many of you have heard. Uh, he's had a very career in film, television, and academia. Uh, his writing and, and credits are, are very impressive and long, uh, but include multiple episodes of Emmy award-winning TV shows such as The, Pras the Practice, Boston, public and touched by an angel. 
Uh, in addition, he's written film history, educational and corporate videos, and directed the highly praised documentary, Israel in a Time of Terror. And finally, his, his first novel, Heaven's Witness, was named one of the best mysteries of the year by the Weekly Standard. And so, uh, Alan will be concluding our panel this morning by uh, discussing non-university educational initi initiatives. Uh, specifically, he'll be discussing his experiences scaling educational content to the masses, uh, and uh, such as the video that we've already seen, or videos, and how this can be used and leveraged both in the classroom and out of the classroom. So with that, uh, take it away, Alan. So let me just tell you briefly about Prager University and what it is. Prager University is a university on the internet with one very unique feature. All our courses are five minutes long. We're all about five minutes. And the way it came about, there were, there were a number of ways, but one of the big ways it came about was that people would always complain to me and to Dennis and to people we know that they just don't have time. They're busy. We're all busy. I want to learn about these things, but I don't have time to do it. So what we decided to do with Prager University was to leverage that complaint into something very powerful. It's not often in life when a project exceeds your expectations, but that's what's happening with Prager University. And I'm as I said, we're all about five minutes, so I'm, we've made a five-minute video for you to explain what this project is all about and how it works. So I'm going to turn it over now to somebody you're going to see tonight, Dennis Prager. Hi, I'm Dennis Prager. Prager University presents the most important ideas in free five-minute videos on the Internet. We explain the ideas that have made America the freest and most prosperous society in history. And we explain why only a free market system can lift a society from poverty, why the world so needs a strong American military, why Judeo-Christian values are the core of Western civilization, and much, much more. And here's the best part. Our five-minute videos reach tens of millions of people across the world. How do we do this? First, we feature some of the world's finest thinkers. Second, our videos are clear, concise, and entertaining. Progressive versus progressive competing to see who can most flamboyantly claim to be offended, to proclaim that their feelings have been hurt, or that their sensitivities have been rubbed raw, or their serenity disturbed, or their composure discombobulated. I'll fight for you. So tired of these politicians in their town hall meetings when somebody stands up and says, I'm pregnant with quadruplets. Um, I've been put on academic probation at the junior college and my milkman hates my guts. What are you gonna do for me? Being a normal boy is a serious liability in today's classroom. Boys tend to be disorganized and restless some have even been known to be noisy and hard to manage. Sound like any boy you know? Third, we employ sophisticated social media marketing to connect to our audience. Our goal is to change minds, and just as important, to teach those who agree with our values how to make these arguments on their own so that they can also change minds. We supply the ammunition in the war of ideas and the number of people we touch 
is unparalleled. In 2015, PragerU had 70 million views. You heard that right, 70 million. This year, we will surpass 100 million. That's an average of about a million unique individual views of every single video we release, and some of our videos get far more than that. Some examples, the Middle East problem, an explanation of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, received over 6 million views. Again, that's 6 million different computers in eight languages, including Arabic. Was the Civil War about slavery, taught by the head of the history department at West Point, has seven and a half million views. Don't judge blacks differently, an argument for equality based on behavior and not skin color, delivered by a young black woman, has over five million views. And these views matter. 70% of Americans use the internet as a regular source of news. This is especially true of young people, and 60% of our viewers are under 35 years old. We're not done. There's also radio. We promote every PragerU video on my nationally syndicated radio show, heard on more than 150 stations across the United States. And our relationships with other talk radio hosts as well as other websites, bloggers, and newsmakers, expose us to an even bigger audience. Major newspapers, both in the U.S. and internationally, refer to our videos on a regular basis. Fox News has played excerpts from our videos multiple times. And congressmen and celebrities quote PragerU videos on their social media. There's also outreach to schools, as one large website, which doesn't agree with us, wrote about this outreach. Prager has developed an ingenious way of getting his opinions to a new kind of audience, one harder to reach via traditional media channels. Today, over 3,000 educators utilize PragerU videos as teaching supplements in their classrooms. We're also spreading the word about PragerU through our college student ambassadors program known as PragerForce. These are carefully screened students in schools throughout America who introduce PragerU to their peers and professors. And finally, we are developing a mobile app to instantly arm people who share our values with the data they need to make persuasive arguments. With this app, our students will be one smartphone click away from stats and analyses on dozens of key issues. With our vast reach, savvy marketing, and compelling arguments, PragerU is equipping Americans, especially young ones, with the intellectual firepower they need to defend Western civilization five minutes at a time. And if you aren't sure if five minutes is enough to influence a mind, just think of how much you've learned during this video. I'm Dennis Prager. So there's so much that can be done uh, with these five-minute videos. The, the, the potential is so great. I'm, I'm actually happy that I went third because so, so much important stuff was mentioned by, by my fellow panelists. Uh, as uh, Kit mentioned, first of all, I have to say the fact that Liberty University has an Office of Institutional Effectiveness, that alone says so much for, for Liberty. But he made, he made the point about online spaces where, where students live. This is, this, is, this is their world. And I think it's so impressive that ISI is now 
recognizing that that's where the world is, and, 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 and we at Prager University feel that what, what ISI is doing in combination with what Prager University is doing is coincidentally, and maybe it won't be coincident, coincidentally in the future, but coincidentally now is such an effective tool because what Prager University does is expose students to ideas and what ISI wants to do and what other institutions are doing, but ISI probably doing it better than anybody else, is providing that kind of deep dive that once you're interested, once you're, you're intrigued by a particular subject and you say, well, I want to know more about the free market, I want to know more about capitalism, ISI is, going to, is, is making that now available even to the point where you can, you can, you can be credentialed based on an, uh, an online education. Uh, Jeff mentioned, uh, uh, made a very uh, important comment also to this point, which is that students want to learn. This is a source of real optimism. This is what we have found in our research at, at Prager University. The, we're all very worried about, about education. But what we found is that the, the sort of the political indoctrination of students is, is it's, it's this deep. It's not like they, they, we feel, we make the mistake of thinking that there's some sort of debate that has gone on between liberals and conservatives and, and, and people have said, I'm considering this argument, I'm considering that argument, and, and I come down on the, the liberal side. There is no debate. Our ideas are not known. So when Walter Williams, for instance, the great professor of economics of George Mason, Mason teaches a five-minute course on, on why capitalism is moral, we think, we think that's, a, that's an obvious point. It's not obvious. They've never heard it. It's a, it's a revelation. So they take that revelation now and if there are opportunities such as ISI will present so that not what is what okay what is capitalism this, I, I never heard this before and you go deeper and and learn more about it then this the the you start changing minds that as Dennis mentioned in this brief presentation is what Prager University is all about and of course it's what we're all about everyone in this room is about is changing minds and we do it two ways. We do it, one, by influencing. We will literally change minds of students by exposing them to, the, to ideas that they've, they've never known. I'll give you just one other brief example. I had a con very nice conversation with Professor Campbell a moment ago where he, he mentioned about how do you get Thomas Aquinas, how do you distill Thomas Aquinas into five minutes? And the answer is you can't, obviously. But we have a five-minute course taught by Bert Folsom, the great professor of history at, at Hillsdale, on John D. Rockefeller. Now, if you talk to a student about who is John D. Rockefeller, well, isn't he, he's that robber baron, that greedy capitalist, that, that, that paragon of greed. Well, you're not going to say that after you watch Bert Folsom's five-minute course on John D. Rockefeller. You'll find out that John D. Rockefeller gave away more money than anybody ever made that he funded a black college, Spelman College, that he started University of Chicago, that he made his fortune by providing value to consumers, that John D. Rockefeller was responsible 
more than any single person for the creation of the American middle class. You find that out in five minutes. So no, we can't summarize John D. Rockefeller's life in five minutes, but we can intrigue people about who he is and change their mind, start thinking about who is John D. Rockefeller. Maybe I need to know more about this guy. If we, and we could do the same with Thomas Aquinas. So there is, uh, there is real uh, uh, course, there, there's a real cause for optimism. The, I don't, it's, w one of the things we've done at Prager University, we, we, my background is in Hollywood, and we made it a search, just early on I thought, well, we just make these great little courses and then people will flock to them. Well, they, we, we had a good, uh, a lot of people did, but we didn't get the, the big numbers that we, we wanted, and then I realized that I was making a mistake that I shouldn't have made because I'm, my background is in Hollywood, and most of you may may or may not know that Holly, the average Hollywood movie costs a hundred million dollars. Hollywood spends a hundred million dollars to market its one hundred million dollar movie. So what Prager University decided to do was we're going to start spending more money on marketing because we have a great product. I mean, why does Coca-Cola spend? half a billion dollars a year on marketing, that people don't know about Coca-Cola? Of course they do, but marketing is, is of, of critical importance. So in addition to making a great product, we spend a lot of effort, a lot of time marketing to going, as, as, uh, as, as Kip said, to where these students live, which is online. So the source for, the source for optimism is that we're doing something that the other side is not doing, not doing effectively. We actually have to jump on them. We have to take advantage of that. We have to act decisively, and we have to act now. We all have that sense that there isn't a lot of time. Our, my biggest concern is I wanted, we now have 140 courses or so. I wish we could have uh, 500 tomorrow. So thank you very much, and I'm, we're all very excited to be here, and I, and you'll see, uh, you'll see Dennis tonight, and he'll add, add his special spin on all of this. Now, that's powerful. That is a powerful teaching conservatism in the 21st century. This, that's powerful. I do have one more audio that's very, very, very profound. And this was recently just brought to my attention from my staff and people that I know. And believe me, when I saw this, I was just like, praise the Lord. This is Christian conservatives. They have to be African-Americans in California, in Cali. And I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, why I say that? Because if you understand what the blacks in, in America, most of them are Democrats. You will see the real reason why us conservatives who have to be African-Americans are black saying what we're saying. I'm not from Africa. My family knows some of them are Haitian. However, got the descendants there. But in the same time, man, you got to hear this. And of course, we'll probably go over two minute or two hour mark. That's okay, but you got to hear this. Then we will go back on the flip side of this, okay, and close it out. Hi, everybody. 
we just wanted to put out a little quick video um, talking about some things that have been some pretty sub, um, touchy issues in the news here of late dealing with um, our president, um, our conservative views, Christian views, and immigration. Um, most recently dealing with the LGBT um, stuff in Pennsylvania at a high school where parents were not allowed to view content that 2,800 students or more were required to watch. Um, so first, let me back up a little bit. I want to say, first of all, we're so happy. We're so pleased. We've been seeing a lot more of the African-American conservative movement, a lot more speaking out. Um, I've shared with people before that there are a lot of folks that will kind of DM us, um, letting us know, hey, I agree with your views. I agree with what you're saying about things. It's just so hard because people bully, you know, I mean, literally bully you. And then they call us the bullies um, about our views just because they disagree with them. So I just want to say shout out um, to vote them out dot org um, I want to mention I did a little post on the other day because Daniel and I were in a local grocery store and we witnessed a mother with her children including um, a baby that was I mean she was literally like holding the baby being um, stopped and arrested for shoplifting food um, a hungry mother and it just really hit home and brought it home, you know, what we were dealing with some with some of our family members. Yeah, because you feel for them for stealing food, you know, they might have been able to afford the food and just been stealing it, we don't know their situation. Or, you know, if they, they, they couldn't afford it and they were stealing food, you feel for that. But at the same time, you know, you gotta you gotta get out, you gotta work and you gotta earn what you're gonna get. And you know, basically the woman's stealing and she's with her kids, the kids are going to be affected by that. So, they, you know, they got stopped. I don't know what happened if they get, you know, fined or they go to jail, whatever happens, it affects the kids. And that's the same thing with immigration. If you're breaking the law, our law is that you can't just come into, you know, our country and you haven't been, you know, coming in the right way. You haven't been vetted. We don't know who you, who you are, you know, nothing about you. So, you know, it's basically the same thing. And then if you get in trouble, you break the law and you get separated from your kids, that's your fault. It's not the law's fault. It's not our country's fault. It happens every day. Yeah, yeah it happens every day. If, you, if, if somebody doing something, you know, I, I believe that kids should be with their, uh, with their, with their parents, you know, um, unless, you know, they're, you know, endangering them or, or something like that. But if you're breaking the law, you're 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 the one, you know, basically putting your kids in danger. You're you're bringing you're breaking the law, and it's risky even coming over to America, making that travel that way. If you're not doing it the legal way, you're you're in danger. Then you know, not saying that that everyone coming over is rapists or murderers, but there is some that's coming over that's raping and murdering it to the point that some of the women that are coming over they get birth control and things done ahead of time right. because they yep. they're getting raped at that high of a yeah of yep. that high of a um of a, a rate. And you can go on my YouTube. I have a whole video about it. So you know it's to that point so you know to ignore that you're ignoring the victims of the women that's coming over over the border from Mexico that's getting raped 
this is an issue. So to just, you know, try to say, oh, that's racism, you know, and change people's words to that they're calling every person that's Hispanic or coming over the border as a rapist, and, you know, you're just deflecting from the real issue. Right. Right. And so I wanted to go back a little bit because we're um, homeschooling parents. When we made the decision um, quite a few years ago to homeschool our children, but we still um, advocate for a lot of parents, the kind of work that we do, we work together, um, we are missionaries together. So we do a lot of advocacy stuff, um, especially within the Christian community. And it really bothers us, some of the struggles that we're seeing. We work with a lot of single moms that have to work. You know, they can't um, be home with their children. They rely on the school systems to be able to work just to put food on their table and that kind of thing. And have to worry that your children are being indoctrinated um, at school and you can't even view the videos that your children are are being shown um, and they're also one of the things we read in the article they're saying that the LGBT videos that were shown to these kids at the school in Pennsylvania had nothing to do with sex it was just about unity and anti-bullying yet the LGBT community there at the school are the ones that put the video together there's no way to separate anything dealing with LGBTQ from sexuality um, you, you just cannot do it um, and regardless of what they're trying to say, this is a Christian nation right. built on Christian values. And as a Christian, that's, you know, it's against, you know, it's against my God. It's disrespecting my God. And that's bullying to just tell people that they can't, you know, voice things that they want to voice when you can voice the opposite. You right. know, like they did the, the, the boy that wore the, the uh, Build the Border Wall shirt. And then they're telling him, you know, he can't do that. But they had a poster up talking about let, you know, people into our country and, and you know, talking about the immigration. So he's not allowed to respond or, you know, they're trying to say that that's not against his First Amendment right. And it, and it is if he's not allowed to respond, <laughs> but they're allowed to attack. Yeah, that's that's bullying. That's my mother-in-law that keeps chiming in. Yeah, in that's, the that's bullying. You can't, but, um, you can't who is it. who is a veteran also served our country also. But also, I want to say Daniel did a post um, a while back, and I really really liked it. We don't always sit together and say, "Hey, I'm getting ready to post this." So sometimes, even though we share a Facebook page, there are times I go in and I'm checking, and then I'll see something that he posted. But I really liked when he compared just leaving your windows and your doors open. You know, just letting anybody come in um, to what's going on it's absolutely insane that we have um, liberals saying anybody should be able to come in and now unfortunately a president has been elected over in Mexico that's going to be encouraging that kind of thing um, it's just we got to pray folks it's a lot of stuff going yeah on. I, and I want to I want to wrap I want to wrap this up because you know some of the stuff I want to do another video on that and get into it right. more depth it so, will definitely be John Cox. If you're in California, get behind our And we were behind him before Trump endorsed him. Yes, very much so. You we know, have our so, personal reasons as yeah. pro-lifers. Uh, large family, seven children. But I, I want to talk about I, it. I want to end this by with a challenge. What I want what I want to do is is anybody that believes that the border should just be open and to let anybody in if you if you can't do this challenge, then you're a hypocrite. So from this day forward, I want you 
to leave your doors and your windows unlocked every day, right? And and also, you know, I want you to you on your on your Facebook, it should say where you live too, because everybody, you know, they know where America know is, where and is. and you know, and so you want to leave your doors and your windows open. I'm not leaving that my doors and windows open because I got daughters and and I got kids, you know, and so I'm not gonna do that, you know. But 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 since you feel like that's okay, I want you. Wow, 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 and the real I love this. Um. This is people who are not just doing it because it's a trendy thing. They're doing this because this is a godly thing. they saying that God is the absolute reason of why they are they left the Democrat Party to become conservatives. But the, that's the whole emphasis of why we're doing this here. They walk away from the Democrat Party. They walk away from being active of being after this into things and they're going to go in and educate people the truth right there is a prime example and why we need to get away from being like the various people that we are talking against you see that's the main emphasis on the whole thing you got these stupid people called the Young Turks. You got the, you know, they cuss, cuss, cuss. They say they're a news organization. What they bring it? You got even people who claim to be conservatives cussing, high, doing all kinds of stupid stuff on Facebook. You got all kinds of people who claim to be something they're not. Now, we need to make ourselves a standard. We need, as, as Christian conservatives, we need to have a standard here. And that standard is that we are chosen by God at this time to bring the truth to the people of a dying world. That's it. It's no ifs, ands, buts about it. And what more can we do but to tell the truth about it? Because we we more guilty of the people that we say we're talking about if we don't stand up for what we believe in. That's it, man. I mean, I don't... I can't sum nothing more than that. So that's why I'm telling you, as a firm believer and as a child of God, I believe in what we do. God is my father and Jesus is my Lord. And being this way is the best way. So next week, after the elections, after the midterm elections, the Thursday next week, I'm going to have a panel of people that we're going to talk about all these things that happen and how we're going to have a plan. We're not going to just talk about things. We're going to have a strategic plan and we're going to execute it. Because this plan we're going to do that we are going to talk about, it's going to be the plan that we're going to make this happen. Because we're going to say, this is how it's going to happen. This is how it's going to be. And let's put this, not just put it in paper, let's make this happen. It's time to stop playing games. It's time to get away from all this stuff that's going on out there. Yes, we do need to have our own social media network, but the the thing is, is that the social media network we that that is need to be done 
needs to be something that will bring a safe haven for to our future generation to be able to and look at the archives that we put out there for them to learn what it means to be a child God. That's it. It's no such thing as the Christian left. No such thing as the Christian right. It's Christianity. Conservatism. Simple as that. So next week, next week is the aftermath of the midterm elections. You stay tuned and we got much more to come as we go forward in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Biblical Editorial Review. We hope this broadcast has challenged you to see this world from God's perspective. Tune in next time for another Biblical Editorial Review. The Biblical Editorial Review is copyright by the Resilient Christian Radio Network.